everybody. It's Myth from Myth Writes. Um, welcome to our program. Today we have Ali V with us, uh, a bisexual writer. Um, Ali, uh, great to have you on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, we went to school together, Ali and I did. Um, why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us a little about yourself? Hi, Myth. Uh, thank you for having me here. Um, my name is Allison, and my pen name is Allie V. Uh, I am a 24-year-old from Michigan, and I, I love to write fiction. Uh, I have a Twitter. Uh, it's at Wife of Whirl. It's primarily a Transformers Twitter, but I also post writing there sometimes. And um, I currently don't have anything... Uh, published or for sale at the moment, but I'm hoping to get there in the near, near future. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. Um, that's just always a constant work in progress. Um, so that creativity, that's been a pretty important part of your life. Um, and this is kind of like a heavy question to start with, but I think it's kind of nice to have it as an overview. Um, what are your legacy goals with writing? Like, if you could set a dream, if you could set a goal, where would you want to be with writing? Because it's a big part of your life, and I can see how important it is. So, what do you have on the go there? Well, basically, my ultimate goal in life is to publish a novel. Though, um, over the years, I've I've noticed that that's kind of becoming a lot more daunting to me. So I'm kind of planning on um, uh, getting some short stories published first just to ease my way in. And then we'll see how that novel stuff goes. I have like over 30 different works in progress right now, some of which... <laughs> that hasn't been touched in like I don't know years. <laughs> the which, UFOs, you know, like, the daunting, feel guilty about that. <laughs> the daunting UFOs, the unfinished <laughs> objects. I have so many in my queue myself, and yeah, um, and I think that that's completely fair because I mean, yeah, self-publishing. I'm lucky that um, I had such a negative first go with the publishing industry, and now I'm self-publishing, and that kind of puts it. I guess it makes it less daunting because you know I can kind of work my publishing schedule around real life and when you're actually going through publishers it kind of has to be at their whim and on your your dime and your time um constantly you know getting in touch you know trying to worm your way into the slush pile um so i can definitely see <laughs> right why yeah. that could be a little daunting but i do hope that you go through with it um now if you do go through with it and you get this book and you kind of overcome that, that hump in life that's just like we don't have enough time, <laughs> I never have enough time to write, um, and you, you kind of have a <laughs> legacy goal in there somewhere, so what inspires you the most? What's, what's inspiring it? What would inspire you to write a book? Well, well to be honest, uh, what doesn't? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm inspired to write to write things like after seeing TV shows and movies, after reading comics and other books and and stuff like that. And honestly, it's because I'm inspired by other media that um, I have so many projects because I, I just I have 
so many ideas I want out there, but the the act of like getting it all on paper uh it's a little daunting. It's it's a bit rough. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of I'm unfortunately of the mentality where I like I want to read my own stuff already, but it's it's not done. So uh, I almost wish there was a fast forward button in life. Yeah, I know. It's 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 good though that you want to read what you write. You know what I'm saying? You're basically writing something you want to read, which is probably the absolute best way to approach any legacy goal and writing it as a whole. Um, so, like, would you say while you're being inspired here, uh, would you say that your experiences um, as a woman, as a bisexual woman, as that representation is actually pretty lacking, or if it is, it's very um, male gaze-based lackluster. Um, Would you say that that would be another reason that you would want to have a book out there that more accurately represents you and what you want to see? Would that be a a fair statement? Well, I mean, kind of. I mean, I personally don't... uh recall a lot of um you know gay centric books or whatever but then again i it's not personally don't really know where to look right well i mean that, that should say something i mean that that definitely tells you about you know all children needing a book that meets them on their level as they grow into young adults and needing media to represent that because if you can't recall it in media Uh, at least you know where it was not glorified pornography you know what i'm saying um and it wasn't an accurate representation (laughs) of what it was like to be bi um that would definitely mean that there's lack of material out there because um it's just automatically assumed especially in american culture that you're straight and that you're white and that you're male and that there's only certain things you want to read And, you know, being bisexual kind of, I would assume, lets you kind of float back and forth between male gaze, female gaze, and kind of wanting a little bit of both. And and when I say gaze, I mean not gay people, but the gaze to actually look at. Um, So when we say male gaze oriented, what I'm talking about is um, assumptions men make about bisexuality, such as um, being bi if you a woman dates a man that makes her heterosexual and she was never queer. Um, or that, you know, she only needs a right, you know, the right man to make her straight. And that would be a very male gaze concept. Uh, yeah, so you that's... know what I'm saying? Yeah. You see it a lot. Like if, yeah. <laughs> if you get any representation, that's usually how it is. Or, you know, um, we have a queer or a bi female that has to, in video games in particular, they're notorious for this. Well, we included bisexuality and they had a lover of the same sex, but then they had to continue the family line and, you know, they have to have a baby and blah, blah, blah. And that is another form of bisexual erasure. (laughs) Right. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with being a bisexual parent and wanting to have a family, but that is a notorious killer. And so we see that a lot. Uh, killing writing, killing creativity, and pigeonholing bisexual women in particular. Um, so I can definitely yeah. see you saying, I didn't really see that growing up. Um, 
And I don't want to make everything about that because first and yeah, foremost, um, you're a writer sorry. and a woman writer. No, no, you're okay. Um, that very first and foremost, you are a woman, you're a person, <laughs> you're a writer, you're also bisexual. So um, that kind of in mind, does that figure into your literary success? Do you think that like if you were to include more bisexual things in your writing, it would make you less likely to be published, more likely to be published, just don't know? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I, uh, honestly, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I, I have sent things to publishers before, but, uh, that was like a while ago. So I, I honestly don't know, um, right. what it's like. I mean, I can imagine that it's, you know, difficult for like a number of reasons. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I were, if I were to send stuff, would I just like send things anywhere or if I should look for like specific, um, like gay community publishing or something. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. As I say, I feel that that would probably be a difficulty you would encounter if you tried to include bisexuality, that you would get the ultimatum from a publisher, which would be, well, we have to make this, we have to stratify this, you know, they can't be a queer person anymore if they are bi and they are female and they meet a male or a male that's bi and meets a female then we have to write the lover out of the equation, kill the lover, that's usually how it's done, and then they stay with the other person and live a happy straight life ever after. Um, that or, you know, the risk you run. So, uh, so, uh, yes. Uh. Yeah. Kill your gays, it's yeah, a great the, trope. Yeah, the gay character with a sad past. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the only place I've really seen... Um, even like remotely like gay inclusion is with like uh, certain choice based games like you know Mass Effect and Dragon Age Inquisition mm -hmm. where like doesn't matter who you choose you can like choose different genders for your player character to and the story romance still, yeah. although there are go ahead there are like like with Mass Effect like the the male player character Shepard uh, there wasn't an option to like for example date Garrus which right. in my opinion is a missed opportunity <laughs> and I yeah. mean so yeah there's like you know a little bit of inclusion there but there's also like we could have done a little bit more because you know it's it, they're long games I it's, mean it's lacking what's, what's you... a few Two extra instances. I mean, you know, the other thing you can look at too is um, even if you do manage to get through as a as a queer person, as a bisexual woman, in publishing, you know, in games or in publishing, and you get that option in, um, there's always the automatic assumption that everything that is queer in general is pornographic. Um, like, you know, two men kissing is, you know, if a heterosexual couple kisses then, you know, that's okay, that's fine, and then it automatically becomes offensive or pornography or adult content if a gay couple kisses. Um, the other thing you have to look at is that 
those publishing queer works very often have to publish through publishers that all they do is publish smut. And there's nothing wrong with writing porn, but not all bisexual or queer writing is is snuff porn, for example, um, which I found a lot when I was writing uh, male male gay stuff. Um, that oh yeah, we published this, you know, mm-hmm. if you make it really smutty and it's just all pornography and there's no plot. Um, so it's it's really very pigeonholey. Yeah, and there's it's super there's... hard to. Yeah, there's there's more to the gay community than just, you know. I mean, gay people have sex, like you know, a five minute v- reading or whatever. <laughs> and gay people have romance, <laughs> and bisexual people have romance, and just because you're bi doesn't mean you're quote unquote poly or quote unquote slutty. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that um, it's automatically assumed that all queer things are pornographic, um, which. As an artist, I would find that really difficult because, you know, if I do a cute general painting of a happy heterosexual family and a baby, and then the next day I have two men holding hands and I paint that, then automatically the gen thing that I painted a couple days ago that's is pornographic and that it's child porn. And I've had that happen more than once. And that assumption that as a queer artist, something innocent and general and perfectly fine um, has been, I won't say contaminated, but it's pretty close that the assumption is that as a, as a queer person, as a queer trans man, that everything I do is pornographic or pedophilia, um, which is super unhelpful for me. And so of course I'm looking at you pursuing this career and, you know, I'm kind of going, gosh, that's got to be really difficult because it's hard enough being queer in general and then add on the fact that you're, you know, you're a woman, you're a queer woman and you're bi. Because there's that lack of bi acceptance even among the queer community. And um, it can be the same for aces as well. So that's really tough. Um, so if you could... If you could have a literary success, how would you, what would you like to do? Because that will figure into your legacy. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you could write a book, like, what would your ultimate book be? What would you want to come across with? Well, uh, I mean, I have a few different ideas. Um, uh, One of the ones I'm working on, well, that I have worked on, like features um like a a robot woman who um works for an older guy and uh like her past comes back to haunt her and uh she like takes an interest in another robot woman (laughs) and you know just a bunch of you know what's really kind of shenanigans you know what's kind of cool about that um actually uh that that's actually cool lesbian robots is one that i don't hear too often or perhaps bisexual robots <laughs> um would you say no i i can't remember i know we've had a discussion are you on spectrum or no oh um i well yes kind of i kind am of. on the um autistic asperger's scale that's so, really yeah. that's kind of cool um, so that would be a that actually would be a great legacy because um, 
certainly I know a lot of people on Spectrum who like robot-based things, um, probably because uh, communication is a little more difficult for them, so they're actually more likely to relate to something that might have also have trouble understanding the nuances of emotion and um, emotional regulation and stuff like that. So um, I think that's actually really kind of cool because certainly (laughs) there are a lot of people on Spectrum out there who would love to read something like that. So I do hope that you go through with that because what a legacy (laughs) goal, you know what I mean, Matt, to do a novel about um, that's kind of Spectrum-y and it's just, it's so vitally important that people see themselves represented in literature and not everybody is off spectrum. I would say, honestly, my experience with the people, the circles that I run in, um, the queer circles are more likely to have people on spectrum. So in my world, I would say it's a 50-50 toss up. Pretty much everybody's somewhere on spectrum that I interact with on a regular basis. So that's actually brilliant. I really hope you go through with this book someday and you have the time to work on it. So, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> I guess based on based on what you're saying, I guess that's the reason why I'm so obsessed with Transformers. <laughs> it's I would not be surprised. Um, I know quite a few people in the Transformer fandom that identify as queer, and they identify as on spectrum. Um, so I think that's actually fantastic. I'm just. I'm doubly excited now to do this interview because I just, I think that it's so important that, <laughs> that everybody has a voice and I want to hear that. Um, no. Well, happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and I'm sure my audience really appreciates hearing this too, because man, we really need some hope out here. Um, so do you see yourself growing yeah. as a writer? Like, um, I know that you've got you've got to have something that kind of drives you to keep writing, um, whether you've you've really figured out what that is yet or not. Um, are you growing as a writer right now? Do you feel like you're stagnating a little bit? Um, how do you deal with that? Because obviously, especially right now, I know we're just we're in the grip of COVID and society is at an all time low. And I know you're in America and Michigan and. And life is really hard right now, and you're in a particularly hard-hit area um, because of COVID and lack of assistance. Um, so how are you keeping some inspiration here? Do you keep drawing that from fandom, or does that just kind of come from someplace inside, too? Uh, I um, roughly, like... Oh, geez, was it really earlier this year? Okay, uh, earlier this year... Um, <laughs> I uh, got involved with um, a video game review website. Uh, it's called Hardcore Droid, and um, basically they have us that we there's like we're provided with a list of um, mobile games to look into, and we choose one and we we play it for a bit, and then we write a review about it, and then there's this whole. Uh, editing process and posting process and I've written like a bunch of articles and uh, comparing my first article to my most recent one I think I have definitely grown in that respect and um, when I was in college uh, I through a few writing classes I actually learned how to 
edited properly, which is, you know, honestly kind of sad because I feel like I should have been learning this earlier <laughs> than college. Right. But yet it's. Uh... Yeah, editing and giving constructive criticism. I mean, I think I have is... grown. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, I have grown, but I think um, when it comes to like non-work-related writing, I'm a little uh, flatlining at the moment. But um, yeah, I think you and everybody else, it's just it's creatively exhausting. Because um, one of the things that happens when society is really hurting is it turns to arts and creativity. And so that's why it's it's super important that we keep writing, but we the burnout is a real thing. The carrying the burden is a real thing. I know you're holding a real life job right now in the middle of COVID, which is intensely emotionally stressful and anxiety provoking. And so it's really hard to feel creative when you have all these other outside stressors. But the fact that you're 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 getting into editing, you're still writing, you're keeping from getting rusty, you know, you still got you've got that you're turning underneath you're like a duck smooth on top and just going like heck underneath um and that's good because it's going to keep you involved <laughs> in your community it's going to help you fight depression it's you know hopefully someday all of this will deliver you to the end goal of creating that novel you really want to write and um that's an exciting opportunity in the long run. Um, yeah, so I'm so yeah. glad that you're, you found some place where you've kind of got mm -hmm. a writing home. Um, because fandom's nice, but it doesn't always necessarily push you to improve the same way that um, getting involved in editing is. And editing also gives you more strengths as a writer. You know what I'm saying? It, it gives you more tools in your arsenal to write. And when you can look for errors and avoid them and know what to do, so um right also, yeah I, and, I know go ahead go ahead and sorry <laughs> and uh struggling with my personal writing is uh i kind of need to at least try and push through that a little bit because i'm currently a part of like two fandom zines and both of which i'm writing for <laughs> so you better get yeah. to it <laughs> So you're still writing, so that's good. <laughs> I, I know that you, you wrote for Eclipse. I actually had the joy of um, working on a couple of your stories. I know that they weren't necessarily included in the zine. I wish they had been, um, but I didn't have control over that. I could only, you know, do the editorial stuff. Um, but I do feel like they, they missed missed out yeah. on the super oh, well. <laughs> good story. But I, I, that's a perfectly valid story, and you could actually submit that to any publisher, and they might even like it as a young adult story. Um, I just, I think that that's a great story, and I, I remember the cat piano, and I feel like you just can't give up on that. I'll never stop harping you about it, because it was a really good story. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have, to so, be honest, I think that one might have to be expanded on a bit because i don't know based on my feedback it i guess the ending was abrupt and i'm like yeah well you know, you know you, i'm you wondering have... if that is gonna eventually be like a series or something i don't know <laughs> it could be like it could be a really cool short young adult series where you did a couple different books like seven or eight different little books and each one was like a chapter book like way back when we did penny dreadfuls you know what i'm talking about so like just a couple chapters at a time, like maybe oh, yeah. no more than 25 to 50 pages. And then the whole thing, you know, 
culminates in the final book that's you know maybe only 50 or 60 pages that'd be really cool i i just i felt like it was really fun and it was a little bit different and um it was just a good time i hope you don't give up on it um because it was one of the more original pieces that I read <laughs> well, out, of, thank you. out of the uh, gloom and doom that seemed to continuously find its way into the slush pile. Um, so what did you <laughs> yeah. learn? Like, I, I know that you weren't, I guess, sometimes even if you don't feel like when you hit college, you've got as much editing, you know, editing and... Um, constructive criticism practice as you could have i know um that wasn't quite as well covered as it could have been um for you but what did you learn from it even if it was just you learned what you didn't know did you find yourself after college reaching out for more resources and where did you find those resources well i i enjoyed working on eclipse for the most part because i mean i I never worked on something like that before, so it was like a new thing for me. But, you know, I I learned a bunch of things from it. And, and you know, bonus, I met you, which which was awesome. And, uh... <laughs> would, you, um, would you say that um, working on Eclipse... Um, again, sometimes even in the negative aspects of things, we learn things. So, um, I know you had some really positive experiences too. Did it open your eyes to things about the publishing industry or if you should ever in the future become an editor? Um, did it open your eyes to how editors can be biased and how that can be managed to push more really good, open-minded creative stuff out into the world versus you know being that editor that all the characters have to be straight all they have to be white they have to be to entertain men the plot has to be a certain way did that did that open your eyes to maybe you would do things differently if you had a job as an editor or a company you work for well i would do my best to be um more open-minded but uh I mean, if I, mean, I would like, you know, try to do some research on companies I would want to work with. And if they have a history for like only publishing very um, narrow minded stuff, then they might not be worth pursuing. I think that's a good but uh, I mean, I would try to, you know, give everyone a fair chance as best I could. Yeah, I think that that's because I mean, even if I personally don't find interesting i mean other people could so right um awesome uh what would if you could give other writers going through school or out of school a, a push to get published um how would you how would you go about that like how would you encourage them like what are the things that you think they can do now while they're in college or just fresh out of college to increase their chances of, you know, hitting that slush pile, actually getting in and, you know, not just immediately having your manuscript tossed. Um, what would you encourage them to work on now? Um, or things that you learned that you needed to work on that might be helpful to them? Like, do you have any thoughts on that uh, that you could share with our listeners? 
Well, I'm not exactly the best advice giver, but um, if I were to say anything, I'd say uh, write what you know, but also write what you love and what you want to see. And yes, you will get rejected a lot, no matter who you're submitting to. But even if you do get accepted, like don't stop sending your stuff out. You like it's you always need to get your name out there as much as possible. And my dad actually said, uh, like, submitting is practically a part-time job in itself. So, yeah, you almost have to treat it like that. But, you know, don't, you know, burn yourself out with all that, so. You just say, don't burn yourself out, but don't give up either, because you never know. I mean... I, I, yeah. I believe, no, don't quote me on this, it was Stephen King who showed us an entire wall of manuscripts stacked up all the way, and he said, these are all the manuscripts that I have had rejected. Um, and all his rejection notices and the rejected manuscripts, and like, the man has a solid wall of rejection notices. And Stephen King is obviously very famous and very well published. Um, so that gives you an idea that even when, you know, even if you do get published and you're routinely publishing and you're working with companies, um, you can't give up because you never know who's going to say yes. You never know who's going to say no. Nothing is assured in the publishing industry. Um, so that's, yeah, even the more, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're okay. Uh, yeah, even the more well-known and famous authors, started somewhere so yeah exactly and i mean it it may be tomorrow it might be next week it may be 10 years from now but you shouldn't give up on the dream you shouldn't be discouraged because i cannot tell you how many rejection notices i have um it's ridiculous uh and you know certainly my writing is not horrible by any means um now in that vein um no definitely not Do you read, because I know that, like, certainly at the college level, we get lots of reviews, um, and then later when you're published, you'll get reviews from your readers. Um, Obviously, you get good reviews, you get bad reviews, and your dad was, is good enough to give you that information that, you know, you shouldn't let it burn you out, you shouldn't let it discourage you. But um, do you read your reviews? Because I know you say you're, you feel very, you're a very sensitive person and that it's okay to not read your reviews if you're too sensitive. That's what PR people are for. Um, but like, how do you deal with that? I guess is what I'm trying to come across here. <laughs> well, I, I do. Uh, well, when I was at you know college with the clips and stuff, I did look at my reviews and um i mean the the positive stuff you know that that made me happy i was like oh yay they like this and 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 uh and yes i am on the sensitive side but um i know all the constructive criticism i got like wasn't meant as like a personal offense or anything it was supposed to help me and you know i you know, I had to, you know, keep telling myself that because, you know, we're all trying to help each other here. And I did my best to take uh, the criticism and um, try to improve 
what I had. So. Yeah, I was going to say, because, I mean, that was one of the things that I noticed in our writing program, that there was a sincere lack of um, how to give creative criticism. Now, I've gone to a couple different universities, and I was lucky enough that my freshman year at a totally different university, we had an entire class on how to to edit, on how to give constructive criticism, and positive constructive criticism. Um, because I think what people miss in the concept of constructive is the constructive. Um, and they don't understand that you should never just tear somebody down. Um, my What I was taught was tell somebody why something doesn't work and then give them an idea on how to fix it. Um, because there's no point in giving any kind of criticism that can't be mended because then you create the sense of learned helplessness that their writing is never going to be up to par, they're, it's never going to be well received, they're never going to like it. So whenever I give criticism, even as an editor, um, which I don't have to, but I really feel driven that that's important because, I mean, the point of feedback from an editor is learning how to make those changes. So when I am doing this thing, I always go, this is not working for me. I don't think it's going to work for your readers. Have you considered trying this approach? Or have you considered trying this wording? Or I would word this like this because X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that that's super important that people know that the mistake is not terminal. It doesn't mean that their writing is bad. It doesn't mean they have to scrap the whole thing or cut out dozens of pages. Though um, in editorial process, it is important to to cut out some things that you just are not helping your cause. Um, and that's always hard because I always have to like hand the scalpel to the writer and say, I'm sorry, but these pages have to go. And then I kind of feel like a monster. Um, but for the most part, I always want <laughs> right, to, if you... you know, encourage you to, course, to I mean, that. if go ahead. Of course, if um, you're the one that has to do the cutting and feels it feels like it almost excruciating sometimes. Yeah, and that's why I always tell people that's not gone writing. The nice thing about in the modern day is we're not here henpecking away with the typewriter. It's in a digital file, so you might cut that out and you may find that it just it didn't need to be in your book. It was extraneous. It didn't help the flow, right? But we cut it out, but you still have it in a doc. You can just copy it and paste it in another doc, and it just sits there. It's just a chunk of writing. Maybe you can use it for something else or you can edit it, or it's a jumping off point for a short story. Because, um, you know, obviously you can lose a theme or you can have a running idea and then you get too many ideas and you got to condense it, you got to cut some stuff out. But long story short, editing and constructive, the most important thing an editor can do, especially on like an alpha and beta level, is to get with that writer and say, this is what needs to improve, here's why. And here's what I would do if I were you. And um, I think that does get lost. So it can be really hard, especially working with young writers who have no idea how to give constructive. Like I said, I was lucky. I had a professor that taught me how to do that. Um, taught me all about the sandwich method, which is a much gentler way of giving constructive. Um, and I think that that got lost sight of, and obviously I'm always concerned about a writer's morale, um, because, you know, writing should be fun. Writing is sharing your light with the world and you never as an editor want to smother that. 
Um, so that's why I think it's super important for our readers to understand that you have right. those struggles and that that happened in college, that there were times when, you know, reviews were too rough or people were frankly too mean and they didn't mean it that way. They just, that's all they understood is the criticism of the constructive criticism. Um, so it's good for our readers to know that, you know, it hurts and it can be very hard to take constructive criticism the right way. I mean, on spectrum, off spectrum, thickest skin in the world. Um, you know, I've had reviews and I am, I, I joke that I don't have any feels anymore after being in the writing industry. Um, but I mean, I had one review from a professor at Siena where I actually went home curled up on my couch and cried all weekend. I was that upset. I couldn't get out of bed. All I did was lay there and cry. Um, and I don't have feels, so believe me. Um, if you can go through my thick skin that far, <laughs> it hurts. It really hurts. Um, and that's as a... I, I, I don't know if I could necessarily... Yeah, that sucks. I, as I say, I can't say that I'm 100% neurotypical. Um, I think I've got some issues there too. But um, for a neuroatypical, ouch. You know what I mean? So uh, thank you for sharing that with us because I just, I think yeah, our, yeah. our listeners need to hear that to know that it can be a really tough thing to deal with. Um, I know we're kind of getting to the end of our interview here and I'm really valuing this time. So um, I know you're kind of working on growing your writing life and obviously this is not the most ideal situation with COVID going on, but um I know that you really want to explore like um, writing script writing for YA TV shows. Is that something you'd also really like to do? Cause I know we were kind of talking about that. Yeah. I mean that, that would honestly be a dream. Like with all, all of my stories, I, I write them with the hope that one day they'll get turned into like a movie or a show or something and so, like, the opportunity to work on a show, whether, like, it's based on my work or not, will be, like, an absolute highlight of my life. I think that that's fantastic, especially with um, the way I understand it. You do have some underlying goals about some representation, especially for youth, and that can be hard um, because one of the problems writers routinely have is that um, the bias towards young adult writers in the publishing community can be really harsh and so it can feel very painful. Um, like for example, uh, Neil Gaiman put out a book that was basically a fairy story. If you remember Ocean at the End of the Lane um, was fantastic, it was basically a fairy story that did not get slotted as a young adult work because he was male and he identified as male. And so therefore it was much more important. Whereas Harry Potter, had it been published by not Joe Rowling would have found itself not as a young adult story, but as an adult story. Um, so there is actually a bias towards women in the publishing industry. And you see stuff like that. Um, but on the other hand, as a writer, you also kind of feel, uh, myself especially, that that's kind of your chance to sneak in under the radar of young adult and meet 
young adults and older kids on their level and say, here's something for you where you're represented. And you can kind of just subtly slip it under the radar and say, here's a positive representation of someone who's bisexual. Here's a positive representation of somebody who's trans or queer. Um, so you kind of like, I always flinch when people try to classify my novels as young adult and I won't do it because I don't want to be pigeonholed. So, but yet you have that option if you get into a script writing as a young adult writer. Is that a way that you feel like you could pass on without being too blatant or doing anything inappropriate, obviously? Um, it kind of gives you that opportunity to give that representation to kids. So I would assume that kind of ties in with a life goal for you to get that representation out there in a way if, if you're allowed to. Um, would you say that that's fair? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how in the dark I was about a lot of gay community issues, at least, um, at least until I became more active on Twitter. Like, you sometimes see random people posting, like, all these horror stories, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm just over here like, wait, that's a thing? wait people do that and yeah. wait they're being woke is kind a of a term? painful yeah there's a term for that yeah, yeah. um yeah. and it's hard because it's, one it's just one of the issues with oppression okay of people <laughs> is that you don't always realize you're oppressed because it is so complete and total that it's been written out of your life it's written out or into the language to the point that you know what do you do? You didn't even know. It was like when I was having a discussion with my friend Scott the other day, and I was talking about um, being trans and spending my whole life not knowing what trans was, never heard it talked about, never discussed. I mean, obviously, I've heard the negative slurs of tranny and transvestite, but I didn't understand that being um, being a trans man was a thing until I had a doctor sit down with me and say, sweetie, you're trans you're you're a boy you're actually a boy and that's okay and we can get you on medication for this and we can get you to a counselor not to make you not trans but to help you understand what you're feeling like holy shit that was like a meteor coming down from the sky and hitting me there's a word for this you know i'd spent my whole life knowing i was a boy but you know i was always now sweetie you can't wear jeans girls have to wear dresses well why do girls have to wear dresses because i'm not a girl <laughs> Ooh, can of worms. So, uh, you know, um, like the luck, lucky, lucky you with like the good doctor there, because I can imagine not a lot of doctors would have been, well, you know, I mean, so encouraging about that. In our day and age, you know, I went that long. I am from a well-educated family. I'm from a family that is not into oppression of gender as and sexuality like we don't have any issue with me being trans or queer or bi or gay or you know any of those things that was never an issue in my family but societally i grew up in such a vacuum um you know some of that was religious and based because i basically was stuck in a religious cult school for a long time um but and that's a whole nother mm -hmm. that's a whole nother can of worms um but just looking at it and to say that <laughs> I came in this family and I grew up this way 
and I still didn't understand what being trans was. And I was trans, 100%, hands down, trans. Um, and there was all the signs there, and I should have known, but I didn't. So for you to come and say to me, I just, I didn't really know that these things happened in the community, 100%. It's totally believable. And, um, you know, Twitter is one of those places where there are people who are a little too woke to the point of being aunties and being extremely negative and obnoxious yeah being destructive to the community that they claim to try and protect um but then there are other people who can finally take out how you feel and lay it out and say this is a thing there's a name for this and you know you can understand it better here's how to research more on it for yourself and those are the godsends the absolute godsends um so yeah, I mean, that's that's 100% reasonable. And of course, you know, figuring that out, I assume that that just kind of feeds into your life goals and wanting to do young adult stuff is making sure that people know that these things happen and they're out there and it's okay to be that way and to be yourself. Um, so totally awesome. Yeah, and adding on to that, I, I didn't even fully realize I was bi until until college and even when i realized it i you know looking back on it i kind of expected me to be like whoa really <laughs> but it was just it was just oh hey oh hey i'm by all right moving on yeah as i say it was very <laughs> natural it's not that it was um, ever unnatural it's just now you you could <laughs> pin that down you know what i'm saying you could pin it down to the dissection board and go okay so this is part of who i am and I didn't have this information until I hit college. And, and that's also a really normal thing um, in queer development, especially. Um, so everybody always says um, queer relationships in particular by trans and or lack thereof in aces. Um, those relationships always are so tumultuous and so dramatic. Well, if you look at high school relationships, um, that is when hetero kids and cis kids are able to tackle the start of relationships and there's always drama because it just like puppies having play fights to learn how to communicate as adult dogs um kids go through that phase where they're testing out social behaviors and what's acceptable what's not dating how they feel about things what they think um, but that doesn't happen for queer kids because they have to hide it they're either not aware of it, they're so afraid that they are ignoring it for years and years until they're in a place where they can be open about it, and or B, they are just so repressed and so aware and so hidden for so long that college, when they move away from home and religion and oppression and the things that make you afraid, like you don't want to get kicked out of your house because you're gay. Um, you know, you don't want to be stuck in a program where they try to electrocute the gay out of you with conversion therapy. You don't want to go through any of those things, so you hide. And then you hit college, and then that's available yeah, for no. you. Um, so I know we have to, we can't go on for very long, but again, that's a very normal thing that when, you know, writers and creatives and queer people, and we all hit college and we can finally do those things, um, that's, that's a super important part of your development, but it can be really tumultuous too. So like some of it seems very natural, like I'm stepping into who I am and I'm finally admitting it, but it can also be a really rough time cause it's kind of, it's new. Um, yeah, I'm just, 
I'm wondering if I would have realized sooner if, if you know, schools actually taught stuff like this. Because, because you know, really in typical history classes, we kind of just talk about certain points in history that happen to, you know, mention the gay community and then we just go past it. And there's, there's, there's just there's just so much history there that we're missing out on. And that I would have loved to know when, like, a lot to, long time before I went to college. Yeah, it's definitely erased. And um, that just there's a lot of things that are erased. Um, you know, from the Holocaust to slavery to many other things, especially in the United States. Um, all of the things that happened to the indigenous populations of America um, were erased. So there's just a lot of things that are genuinely missing from history. And um, all of this kind of ties back into, I think, what you're trying to do and what your life goal is. And I think that that is fantastic as a creative, as a writer, as a woman, as a queer bisexual person on spectrum. Um, I, I just, I think that that's fantastic. And we do, I mean, just especially here at Mythrights, we really hope that you go through with your stories and you get that out there. And I do hope that you have the option, um, to someday work on a television show because that's just amazing. Um, I think that kids need to hear your voice and in particular, I know I'm kind of biased cause I've read your writing, but you have that soft touch and I think that that would be ideal. So many hope much love all of the support from us to you um and so before you go is there one thing um that if you could choose to share it with my audience with our listeners um what piece of advice would you give them um as a creative um obviously don't get burned out and keep at it but like is there one life goal one sentence that sums up who you are what you do and you would use that to encourage another creative what would it be well i would probably say always do your research because there's you don't know what you don't know until it bites you, you look butt. it up <laughs> yeah, until and it bites you always in the butt. make sure your sources are yeah, and I always make sure your sources are from like, you know, verified sites and the like. Gotcha. So just uh, I, be careful. I've learned. Yes. It's good to I've represent, but a lot more from Google searches than I have in my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously, of course, what we always say. I know, um, in my corner of the universe, is anytime you can interview someone. Um, who's lived that life, incorporate that over what you think you should do or what your straight white activist brain tries to tell you to do. Um, so, you know, if, if you're writing about a genuine experience for a BIPOC woman, interview a BIPOC woman um, who is willing to talk to you. I mean, obviously they don't have to. But you always want to make sure that you're being respectful and accurately representing them. Um, and not everybody has the luxury of a don't do that guy. But um, yeah, do your research. Absolutely do your research. 
That aside, thank you so much, Allie, for coming out and having a conversation with us today. Uh, thank you for having me here. Um, and please stay tuned for more exciting episodes of Myth Rights. Mm -hmm.